We all know that parenting is hard. So how do parents with disabilities do it? With creativity and because we know of the value of interdependence. Come here about ways experts say we can best empower these families and let's all learn about how parenting can be done differently. I'm your host, Marjorie Onos. Today, we are continuing with my conversation with Ella Kello. Ella is a lawyer who has always advocated for the rights of marginalized groups. She believes everyone has the capacity for self-determination and defends people's rights to be empowered and live their lives as they see fit. In this part of our conversation, Ella and I began our discussion examining the intersection of disability and First Nations rights. Enjoy. And don't forget, for more information about where to find the full recording and additional resources, check out the show notes. So you mentioned a few times the Indian Child Welfare Act. So do you want to talk about the second sort of document that you... Definitely. Thank you. Yeah. So um, I was offered an opportunity by what I think of uh, very admiringly as an as an old school poverty law, poverty rights uh, journal, the Clearinghouse Review um, to do a piece uh, sort of of my choosing. Um, And uh, one of the editors had attended an event where I was speaking, I believe that's how we met. And I wanted to do something specifically on the intersection of um, indigenous communities and disability, um, particularly in a legal context, the intersection of the Indian Child Welfare Act and the Americans with Disabilities Act. So um, I had always been focused, as I said, on the Child Welfare Act. Um, my mother's family, who I was raised with um, here in California, uh, my grandparents grew up in Oklahoma, my grandfather on the Cherokee Reservation. I have the greatest affinity and, and sort of sense of belonging with that community and in the Bay Area Native community. I've always been very active. Um, I, you know, feel like there's such synchronicity uh, between what these populations experienced as far as um, society determining, particularly at the beginning of the 20th century, um, that these are populations that were inconvenient um, and that other than being exploited for money, um, there was just no recognition of their humanity at all. And and I do, I do work um, looking at the history of incarceration of Native people in um, uh, uh, two institutions that one that was particularly only for Indian people, the Canton Asylum for Insane Indians in South Dakota, um, and the Morningside Asylum in Oregon State, which was not specifically for Native people, but it took specifically those who um, were institutionalized from Alaska because Alaska did not have its own infrastructure of um, carceral spaces for disabled people. Um, And it ended up taking significant disparate number of um, of indigenous Alaskans into into its um, system for many decades. Um, So that was an area of interest to me of how disability was leveraged as yet another mechanism for exploiting and oppressing indigenous people. Um, And then on the other hand, there was this synchronicity in sterilizing 
of, of the populations. Um, Indian people were sterilized routinely without their consent, um, both in institutions and out of institutions uh, through the 1970s. Disabled people obviously were uh, sterilized as a matter of national policy, um, institutionalized and sterilized, um, or or either one, either together or either one, um, through the 1970s. Um, and, and I know people say, well, it's still happening. There are spaces it's still happening in, including our penal system, and I agree. I'm just saying, you know, what was formerly on the books started to go away in the 70s. Um, and so I, I really felt like there was um, this synergistic suffering that had happened around being denied children and then the removal of children. So Native people are the only people in the United States that were subjected to a federal adoption policy, specifically targeted at removing their children, um, quite similar to the uh, empiric colonialistic um, efforts undertaken in Australia and in Canada and just taken on the basis of poverty or their family structure not being to the liking of white middle-class people, um, racism, um, uh, a particular hatred of Native people. And then disabled people are the only people on the books where your identity um, uh, can be used as a basis for removal, right? So you can't remove children based on their parents' race or, uh, you know, religion or gender um, or sexual orientation anymore. But there are many states and more when I began this work that say specifically if the parent has a disability, usually intellectual disability or mental health disability, um, you know, and people go, oh, but it says if it's creating problems for the child, the problem is that there's sort of a tacit agreement often in courts that it simply in and of itself constitutes a danger, this sort of predictive neglect model, right? And that's what we saw in the, the other article I sent you talking about IQ, where they're like, oh, if the IQ is X, then clearly this parent can't be capable, right? So I, I really wanted to do something on, on those populations together. Um, what I found was that in many instances, um, disability in a parent or parenting um, extended family member is used as an end run around the Indian Child Welfare Act. So the Indian Child Welfare Act actually has very strong protections, um, very good, well-thought-out protections, things like, uh, you know, Native children should be placed with kin first. Um, beyond that, their band or tribe. Beyond that, uh, a member of an Indian nation um, before they're placed outside of their communities, right? That's, in theory, that's fabulous. Um, Native children, it, Native children's cases, equal cases, should have cultural experts who testify if the parenting or the parenting structure is an element of the state's um, case that there's some, that they're pathologizing something to do with the parenting or parenting culture to make sure that it's not just a cultural difference, but actually something that is negative or pathological for children. That's wonderful. But what I found was that there are cases where you could see that the argument was basically. Well, yes, typically ICWA would require that we go through, and, and also you're supposed to have um, beyond reasonable efforts, active efforts, active. right? Um, they would say, yes, we know usually we'd have to have active efforts, but we all know the issue is mom's bipolar. So what are you going to do, right? Um, or uh, like once we accidentally got CC'd on an email between social workers in a case where grandma um, wanted custody of the child as that next 
kinship member, and they didn't want grandma to have a child. And one was saying, well, doesn't the Indian Child Welfare Act say we have to place with uh, with kin if possible? And the other one said, well, not if grandma's disabled, doesn't she have arthritis? Right, so finding ways to circumvent a protection um, or situations where we don't need a cultural expert. This isn't about culture. It's about disability, right? Um, completely avoiding the the fact that, first of all, there may be a different conceptualization of disability, mm-hmm. right? And that almost never do they actually have um, the capacity or the expertise to even be talking about the disability either, right? Um, so that that was one of the things that I wanted to, to write about and include there. The other was to talk about strategies that may be available to uh, citizens of tribal nations because uh, ICWA applies where the child is a citizen or is eligible for citizenship in a tribal nation. So talking about some strategies that may exist there. So in the case where um, it's an ICWA case, in those cases, the parents can, can appeal a decision, the outcome of a motion or something, up to the federal court, um, contest it with the federal court without having to go through the usual exhaustion of state remedy um, or... Um, can do it at all, where in some in some cases you can't at all go to the federal level. The state uh, is in control of that domain of law. So there are some things that are available, and I wanted practitioners to be thinking about and be aware of that, that some of our doctrines around how you can appeal a matter would be different in ICWA cases. Um, I've been amazed at <laughs> the fact that I've, I've been contacted by people in agencies in Washington, D.C. going, you know, we're trying to look into this issue of, of Indian children and parental disability. And somebody sent us like, I know, a scanned in PDF of some article, but we don't know where it's from. Do you know? And I'm like, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> like, there's not much out there about this, you know, and yet there's been significant interest over the years. So I really do hope that, um, you know, this generation of, of Native attorneys and Native social workers will focus on this issue. I know that right now I'm, I'm really excited because there's a, um, a woman named Kimberly Cluft who worked with the California Indian Legal Services for many, 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 many years and um, is looking at disability in Native children, whether or not the state is providing through their county agencies proper services to those children that are tribal citizens in California, um, and working with a huge consortium of tribal communities focused on this and the California government. And, you know, she's working with a, a young woman who's um, a, a, an Indigenous woman. And I, I would love, and we talked about how parental disability, if the child's disabled and the parent's disabled, they also need to be able to work with the parents with disabilities, right? Make sure things are accessible for them to help their children get services. And, and those are the kind of things that give me hope that we can start building more into the community. Native communities also are um, incredibly, incredibly well-focused on the well-being of their communities. So like uh, the Cherokee Nation in Oklahoma has probably the most state-of-the-art extensive um, medical facility and medical training facility of any tribal nation just completed last year, I believe. And, you know, that's somewhere you could teach doctors about this issue, you know, um, teach occupational therapists about this issue. Um, And they create their own programs to intervene around parents with mental health involvement and other vulnerable parents. Um, In Navajo Nation, they did a project with Johns Hopkins, um, the 
uh, I think it's called Strong Spirit Program. And originally it was, it was really focused on uh, teenage parents, but it is best practice for disabled parents. It addresses and, and use, it uses modalities and interventions that we have seen are beneficial for disabled parents too. Um, so there's a lot of creativity and opportunity happening in Indian country around this. And I'm hoping it'll, it'll become um, more and more explicitly included in the teaching and the interventions that happen. And I'll definitely ask you um, all those references so that we could put it in the oh, show yeah. notes so that we could share Absolutely. to people. Yeah. 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 I, you know, we just, um, I just finished for the first time being an editor of a journal edition. Um, I've, you know, I've been on the other end of trying to get things accepted so many times. So it was funny to be an editor finally. Um, and I, I did that along with, um, two colleagues, um, and, uh, Julia Larkin and, um, and, and, uh, a woman named Susan Birch from Middlebury College. And it was the whole issue was called Disability and Indigeneity. And it's um, through Disability Studies Quarterly. It was a special edition and it's open to access. People can just, you know, you sign in with an account the first time and you can go on it. And it has uh, this incredible collection of writings from mostly Indigenous people um, discussing the concept of disability and Indigeneity and and in their own communities and in history and in uh, looking at historical legal documents and looking at cultural matters. And we really wanted it to be accessible um, to all sorts of readers. And and so it includes first-person stories and also photo essays and poetry along with traditional academic articles, uh, research academic articles. Um, And I encourage people to check that out um, because the voices of these people will take you a million times deeper than uh, I could could go in a podcast. Amazing. I can't wait because as you know, you know, that's also sort of an interest where I feel like we need to sort of be of service, you know? Um, Yeah. Yeah. Canada. This is like fantastic. That's going to be like an awesome resource. Thank you for for doing that and for spearheading. Absolutely. It was, it was thrilling. It was absolutely thrilling. I loved it. So the third um, document that you submitted is one, I believe Mm -hmm. that you've done with Maurice Feldman. on IQ. Um, Uh So do you want to talk about this one? Yeah, absolutely. It was um, Terira Munoz and um, and Maurice Feldman and myself. And this was an article where we really wanted, uh, it was interesting for me because, you know, my work is typically pretty sweeping in scope. As I said, it's, you know, any type of disability. Um, I'm looking at parents. I'm also looking at parenting caretakers. Um, I, I was working nationally by mandate um, under my grant, but also worked internationally um, and, you know, worked with people in Mexico and all over. And this one, we really narrowed the scope down and said, let's look at just parents with intellectual disability, developmental disability. Um, in the American court systems, in just the dependency court system, because also I work across court systems, um, and see how this pseudoscience of relying on IQ to sort of witchily uh, predict parenting capacity is, is manifesting, if it's manifesting. How often is it manifesting? And what we did was to look, um, we did Boolean searches um, of a legal database 
to extract over, I think, I think we had like 45 cases at the appellate level to see how frequently um, this issue of we can tell you if they'll be able to parent based on IQ or included it as part of the offerings to the court to terminate parental rights um, occurred in the trial court and how often it was upheld in the appellate court. Um, so I'll say to begin that there are many states in the United States where you do not have the right to counsel for appeals. So we don't know, you know, this is not determinative, obviously, because there may be many more parents that experience this use of their IQ being weaponized against them in child welfare proceedings that are never able to appeal because they don't have a right to appellate mm -hmm. counsel and they can't proceed alone, right? They're not going to proceed proper um, on their own um, into appellate level cases. Um, so that being said, um, you know, what we found was that over 80% of the cases, um, this IQ was pled where a parent had intellectual disability identified as having intellectual disability. And over 80% of the time it was upheld in the appellate courts. Um, this is particularly concerning because we have peer-reviewed, consistent, long-term data showing that IQ is not predictive of parenting capacity. We know that many, many other elements are far more determinative, right? You know, you're talking about whether parents are isolated, whether parents have appropriate supports, whether they receive an intervention um, that is best practice or peer-reviewed, um, whether that parent has trauma in their life that's been addressed or not, whether there's um, you know alcohol or drug addiction or domestic violence um, happening. Anyone who's worked in the field, and because I actually worked with parents and their counsels, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cases over many years, you know, you know all those things are what create problems. Parental IQ in and of itself, we know from the research is not determinative. And yet the courts just eat it up and it is really easy to weaponize against these parents. We saw in, in the research of these cases, things that I had seen in the work in real time with parents, which are things like, you know, courts. So I've one case particular that really troubles me still to this day um, was a mom and she was actually a native mom. Um, she was a tribal member and she had intellectual disability and she and her child were in a supported living facility that was actually really good in model. It was kind of an apartment complex, but they had people there that would check, see how everybody's doing there to help if anything goes on. And she had personal aides that would come and assist with her, with her daughter. She worked at a local Walmart. Um, but they were just really hot to remove her kid because and this was first that it wasn't normal for children to grow up with staff coming and going, which I found very amusing growing up around the uh, tech upper class of the Bay Area where staff comes and goes about every month of the year. Um, and that the, that the mom wouldn't be able, yeah, she was fine now when the kid was a preschooler or kindergartner, but she wouldn't be able to help her with math by the time she hit eight or nine. And I was like, nor can I nor will I ever be able to help anyone with math because I'm terrible at math. 
Um, but that focus on her IQ and what it predicted she would or wouldn't be able to do as the child got older around schoolwork specifically was just a huge hang up. They were so determined that this mom's IQ would be a barrier. They began pursuing having the child um, connected to her birth father, who the mother had did not like and did not trust and had not had around the child, began having visitations. Mom told them that the child was coming home upset, uh, didn't want to send her. She was wetting the bed now. They still insisted, right? Because they wanted to reunify this kid and her dad because he didn't have intellectual disability. Um, kid came home, didn't want to take baths. Finally, it ends up father was sexually abusing the child. Father was arrested, but mother at this point, the institutional betrayal um, and her damn good parenting instincts um, drove her to take the kid and run. And she left and who knows, we have no idea what happened to her. I had connected her to an, a native law, sort, law resource center, but they don't know where she went either. Um, but that's that's why it matters, you know, is that the entire progression of pursuing services of um, whether children are removed or not, whether um, reasonable services are provided or not, whether reunification happens or not, whether termination happens or not, can be strongly driven by reliance on on one variable that's pseudoscientific. I mean, it wouldn't even meet um, the standards to be considered in our courts as scientific evidence, and yet no one raises this. Mm. Um, it, there, this it's, that's not raised that I've ever seen in court proceedings, yeah. um, that this is pseudoscientific and shouldn't be allowed um, into the record. It's not relevant, yeah. you know? Um, and, and so, yeah, it's very concerning. And that it was only, I think we did that article in 2016, maybe, uh, 2017. So, you know, this this was very recent. It's mm-hmm. very recent. Um, parents with intellectual disabilities, as I said, are, are most often called out in the codes, uh, child welfare codes, as, as you know, a parental, um, an aspect of the parent that can be a basis for removal or for termination of parental rights. Um, along with mental health. And, uh, you know, there are other issues that are similar for people with mental health to this issue of relying on IQ, specifically in California, New York, and some other states that, you know, consider themselves so liberal and progressive, have the most horrible on parenting and disability. Um, they, you can have two psychologists assess a parent with a mental health issue. Um, if they determine that the parent won't benefit from services, no services need be provided. Right. So so there is something similar to this, but I feel like that's what IQ does. I feel like when they plead IQ, it's almost like, okay, you know, case over. Right. Yeah. We've, you know, the, the doctors have established the number and that's it. Um, you know, I was I was on the Osage reservation a few years ago, training, um, provide I would provide free trainings to any tribe whose social services office um wanted it. And they have, many tribes have their own social service uh, departments, like social workers. And, um, and they also have their own courts. And I, in case anyone's wondering the reason why the ADA, we're even talking about the ADA and Indian Child Welfare Act, um, because ADA doesn't apply to tribes, is because um, most of the cases don't take place in tribal court. Most Native people do live um, off reservation, and their cases where they should be going to tribal courts often don't, and instead they're um, adjudicated in the state's courts. Um, 
So anyway, uh, but I was at Osage and, and talking with social workers there about parents with intellectual disability and asking them, you know, how how is it considered? How is this disability considered around parenting? And their answer was so wonderful. You know, these these professional social working women, but also, you know, culturally immersed in their Osage culture. And they said, you know, the, especially with the traditional families, if they just tell the family what the child needs, that the family sort of wraps itself around the parent and child. And they will make sure that whatever needs to happen, happens. And that, you know, I've, I've, I've spoken with... Um, with disability advocate, another disability advocate specifically, who um, is in Oklahoma and and, uh, has disabled children herself. And, you know, she talked about that, about the way that the community wraps themselves, uses that same term, wraps themselves around the family. Um, And I think that that is so interesting because it a lot of the research you see from like people like David talking about the need for this a system of support and and people around and how chilling and undermining isolation is to people with intellectual disability right i think everyone needs that and and that is why again i th- i think you know especially with intellectual disability we would do really well to look to tribal communities and ask them, what do you do? What do your social workers do? What do your courts do? Um, they do it better in many instances because the underlying conceptualization of disability is not that there is something pathological and negative about you. Um, it's an aspect of who you are. And there are a variety of interpretations about what that means or why that is. Um, in different communities, but I, I feel like inherently they do some things better than us. And we really need to be looking to them and asking advice on how to improve our systems. Yeah. And it's, and it's great that you're mentioning this because, you know, it's a great segue to the, to the next question, which was, you know, what should the field or, or in this field, what should we do for the future? Right. Yeah, that's that's always the question, right? And there are, you know, lots of recommendations in Rocking the Cradle that are still valid. Unfortunately, have not all been done. Um, but I, I will say that I think it, it begins with training. It begins with, we have to accept that as nations, because of eugenics, we isolated and segregated these people away for over 50 years, mm-hmm. right? And it takes society a while to relearn, not to learn, because they were part of our societies until then. Right. And there were always some people with disabilities parenting. Right. Um, But as a large population, um, we have to relearn to think about them again and to integrate them again when we're talking about families and parenting. And so I, you know, having I I have degrees in, in social welfare, Native American studies and law, I never received any information on parents with disabilities. And my social welfare program is the number one in the United States. And, you know, the social welfare program at UC Berkeley, um, it was a, a people's program. It was trying to create people that would go out and work for the well-being of families. I don't think any social worker wakes up in the morning and goes, you know, I want to go screw over families today. Mm. Like, that's just not, you know, I don't believe that people are driven by an inherent desire to do badly at this. But we don't train anyone. We don't teach them, right? This needs to be a part of the training in social welfare programs, in law programs. You know, th- this should be part and parcel of what people are taught. 
Um, and then when they go into their professional communities, it needs to be part of the continuing education that they receive, um, particularly in child welfare and dependency courts, but also in the guardianship courts and the family or divorce courts, we call them, mm-hmm. um, because those are places where we're still making what feel like life and death decisions for families, right? Um, in child welfare, of course, it's that much more intense because we are legally terminating the relationship between parents and children, ultimately, potentially. Um, and we we have to start talking about these families and these systems. I think we have to own the fact that disability is an inherent experience of the poor. It is so common among very poor people. Um, being poor, may, maybe not as much as Canada, I can't speak to other contexts, but in America where you have no guarantee of housing or education or healthcare, the likelihood of developing disability if you are very poor is exceedingly high. And so when we're dealing with impoverished systems, as in the child welfare and dependency system, um, it's a matter of justice and fairness that we acknowledge we have disabled huge swathes of that population. And we need to account for that. And with communities that are highly overrepresented in our systems, specifically our, our Black and Indigenous communities, we need to account for how that is driving them, the overrepresentation of those communities in our system. Unfortunately, I see um, I see people on both sides of arguments around racial overrepresentation in these in child welfare, ignoring the disability aspect and how it can drive involvement in that system. Um, and and so whether you think it's from due to structural racism or um, inherent harm that's been done to the community that's created dysfunctional coping mechanisms, whatever your position is. Nobody's talking about that disability in and of itself is a driver of ending up in that system and doing poorly. Um, So I'd really like to see education. I'd like to see training. I'd like to see people acknowledge that we have a responsibility to address this because we've created um, a lot of the disability in the poor community. Um, I would very much like to see the um, Department of Justice require um, training and that funding be tied to developing resources in your county. So that if counties are gonna receive monies from the state and from the federal government to do child welfare, they must show that they are funding the development of peer reviewed and best practice intervention services, specifically in creating interventions that are peer reviewed, like Dr. Feldman's for for people with intellectual disability, um, some of the Australian uh, models for intervention in parent within families where parents have mental health, um, and um, in, in, in training occupational therapists. Oh, that was the other group I was going to say, occupational therapists, social workers, and lawyers all need to be trained about this. Um, but in creating OT um, training funding and creating capacity for OTs to learn how to work with parents with physical disabilities, including blindness and deafness, to parent their children. Um, I think that those would go a huge way towards ensuring the safety and well-being of children. And, you know, and I'll admit, like, I I like adults. Adults are nice. But my my real driver is kids. Um, I just don't ever want to see a child removed from their family and put into a carceral space simply because people guessed or assumed that the child couldn't be cared for by a disabled person safely. Um, we know that when kids go into foster care and, and, and dependency systems in our country and in other countries, their risk for harm, for sexual abuse, 
uh, for physical abuse or mental abuse, and even for death, um, skyrockets. And no social worker or lawyer is going to tell you, oh, foster care is great. That's definitely a great place for kids. It's wonderful. I'd recommend it, like, you know, in a case. It, it's seen typically as a last resort, but with disability, because people are working off of myths and assumptions and uh, sort of tacit agreements about the pathology of disability, they jump to that, to removing kids. And once you remove them, take them out, it's hard to get them back with a disability. So my real focus is on the well-being of children. I, I don't want children to be put in riskier situations simply because someone's guessing at whether or not there's risk in their home situation. So I think all those, the, all those recommendations go toward that. Hey, we're going to be busy for until uh, until our retirement for sure. Oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. If there was one thing that you could tell childcare workers, uh-huh. what would it be? Oh, uh, if there's one thing I could tell them, you can't truly know how parents with disabilities or caretakers with disabilities and their children mutually adapt to one another. How parents learn to do all the things that you go, how would you ever do that safely if you are blind or deaf or whatever? Um, How could we ever create support or an emergency plan if you have this mental health issue or that? you can't understand that what how creative parents are and what they will do to ensure they can care for their children. And also you can't understand, unless you've looked at the research, how babies and little children mutually adapt with their parents and how babies of a parent who maybe has small motor functioning show patience and, and a lack of distress when their diapering takes five minutes and an infant whose parent doesn't have that disability will start to become distressed after a minute and a half. Parents and children, you you can't know that inside, internal, the way that works of I will figure out and do anything for you. And the child just, it's their norm. It's the water they swim in, right? So stay humble. Don't assume that you can tell from outside um, what the reality is of that relationship. One of my very fondest memories is being about two years old And my grandmother telling me, um, go get your papa. I need your papa for something. And my grandfather, who's deaf uh, from World War II, went Purple Heart, the Bronze Star, got his ears blown out by a Nazi grenade. It was a sniper. Um, Ran into him. And I remember being so little, I had to kind of climb his legs to get up on the sofa where he was and holding his face and saying, Grammy needs you. Because my grandfather read lips. And so I knew by two years old, that if I needed to tell Papa something, then I needed to climb up to get to Papa and hold his face and tell him. And I remember him just cracking up because it was so funny that this little tiny child got how to communicate, but I had mutually adapted. So under, you know, stay humble, do, do the reading, read the research, bring in the right people before you assume that you can understand uh, what the risk is or what the bond is. Um, you might be happily surprised by what the reality of that family is. On that note, I just want to thank you so much for this enlightening and empowering conversation. It was just a very beautiful moment and I I loved every second of it. So thank you so much, Ella. Thank you. 
This podcast was supported in part by a grant from the Minnesota Department of Human Services, Children and Family Services Division.